Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on another episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast, where we are both audio and video. Reminder that if you listen to this at iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcast, you can also go on YouTube to the Damian Mason channel. Just go to YouTube, type in Damian Mason channel, and please subscribe while you're there. You'll see some really good stuff that I put out about the Business of Agriculture as a podcast, but also as commentary and some other fun stuff. My guest today is Rob West. He is the founder and analyst at Thunder Said Energy, and we're going to sort of take what I did a few weeks ago with my interview with Kelly Garrett, the Iowa farmer who's getting paid to sequester carbon, and we're going to expand on that discussion and talk about carbon, carbon industry, carbon emissions, the environmental policies that's coming down the road, and how it will impact all of you in the business of agriculture. That's what we're talking about today with my new friend, and guest Rob West with Thunderset Energy. Rob, thanks for being on the Business of Agriculture. Yeah, thanks for having me. So here's the deal. Uh, uh, I, I, I so much want to get into the second round of this topic, and there's so many different directions to take it. But yeah, to refresh you, Rob, and I told you this when we, before we started recording, I had an Iowa farmer on a couple of episodes ago, and there's only two farmers in the whole country that, uh, by my research, that are being paid to do this carbon thing. So we in agriculture have been hearing uh, all this ballyhoo about carbon, carbon sequestration, environmental policy. We can profit from it. We can integrate these into our practices. And frankly, I, along with a lot of my ag people are like, great, show me the money. So that's what we're going to get into. And I want to hear so much from you. But before I do that, I want to remind our listeners and our viewers that the Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is an, uh, a software solution for your agricultural enterprise that works just as hard for your ag enterprise as you work for your ag enterprise. It's a business. That's why we have the business of agriculture. You should run it like a business. You need software that's modern, up-to-date, and will help you be profitable. Check out harvestprofit.com. All right, Rob West, I gave you the whole lowdown what we're going to do. Now let's talk about you. You're not from Iowa based on your accent. So give me your background and then what you do and who your clients are. Okay, well, let's see. I've been a, a research analyst my my whole career. Um, I guess most most recently, I was running one of the top ranked energy teams um, in the city of London and on Wall Street, and you know, covering the usual suspects like uh, Exxon Mobil, Chevron, Shell, BP, Total, and um, you know, I was going around meeting investors, talking to them about this thing called energy transition, and I just became clear this was going to be one of the biggest themes in the whole world for the next um, number of decades. But like m most puzzlingly, you would talk to investors about this and they would say, yeah, so the way we're going to do this is we're going to um, you know, disinvest from conventional fossil fuel companies and then outbid one another on shares of Tesla. And you know, it, it strikes me that um, that might not be the whole picture of how we um, do this important task for the world. And if you really want to help people, um, maybe we need to find you know, more opportunities. Um, and so this, this led down the rabbit hole of creating a research firm focused on you know, what are the best opportunities to actually get 
the world to this net zero goal, they've got to do three things. They've got to be economical. They've got to make you money. You can't you know, invest in something that um, sinks you financially. They've got to be real. You know, if you had a you know, dime for every time somebody you know, tweets that they've created a cold fusion reactor in their basement, you could have a good pile of nickels. Assume nobody has created a cold fusion reactor in their basement. Um, and the third thing is these things have to take CO2 out of the mix. And one of the things, and this is kind of where I guess we, we pick up our conversation, is you know, I, I thought starting this firm, I was going to spend my time looking at wind and solar and electric vehicles. But you know what? Actually, the real interesting opportunities are in these hidden opportunities, the ones that have fallen through the cracks that aren't you know, covered by anybody or aggressively lobbied for, but actually can do you know, an enormous amount of CO2 abatement at a very, very low cost in a way that restores nature. And so um, this, this has led us to you know, do over 100 different research notes into 100 different Topics all backed up with data and models, and I got to tell you, you know, you're talking to the guy who thinks that um, the the lowest cost route to net zero CO two in the world, actually, more than anything else, it involves farming carbon. It involves um, reforesting about three billion acres of the world um, at a price between something like three and fifty dollars a ton. Um, of, of carbon. It involves restoring you know, carbon in soils. We've gone from 4% carbon in our soils in, in the United States to 1% to 2% because of the uh, practicalities of mechanized agriculture. And um, you know, I think there could be a 20 billion ton per year sink for nature-based solutions um, at the very, very, very bottom of this cost curve. Hey, wait um, a minute. Okay. Now here, here's the deal. I'm going to let you go for one more minute because you're giving us the whole thing. And I've got about a million questions about everything you've just outlined there. So go ahead. So you've got, you're giving us basically the synopsis. You're basically saying, here's what I think. So go ahead. And then I want to go well, back. I, I, I warned you, Damon, I can, I can bore for Britain on this stuff. And I, I'm, I'm promising I'm going to bore you for the remainder of the half hour. But um Look, I, I think we don't we don't need to go through every single bar of the hundred bars on the cost curve of how we decarbonize the world. But what you need to know and what your listeners need to know is there are technologies out there to decarbonize the world twice over. Mm-hmm. So how do we choose between them? And my, my kind of view is, and this is a, a, a view, is um, we should choose the lowest cost technologies. On my roadmap, it would cost an average of $40 a ton to decarbonize the world. That's going to take about 3% of the average income of the average person, which is a hell of an enormous ask. There is no need to make this more complicated and more expensive by willfully selecting technologies that cost $300 to $1,000 a ton and take up you know, way more of people's income. And so you know, let, let's do a low-cost transition and let's do it in a way that restores nature because that, that's part of the goal. And um, I think that's that's why we're having this conversation. All right. So I love it. And so uh, going to the beginning. So, yeah, there you were sitting around as a, an energy analyst, mostly for investors. Obviously, investments say, OK, we have our analyst on this. So a lot of people would say energy analyst, meaning like you're analyzing uh, how to uh, you know put more power into the grid. No, no, no. You were the analyst specializing in the energy sector for uh, folks that want to put millions and billions of dollars into something. And you're saying, here's the deal. And then from there, you spur into this whole thing that, as you said, big money says, we can't invest in BP. We can't invest in Exxon. Those companies are evil. They get protesters. Uh, they, they're, they're polluting the earth. And so this became a big thing here. What, Rob, five, 10, 15 years ago, social investing. I don't want to have my let, 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 let me get, let me give you another ideology. And I think this is really important. Um, I think the science of 
climate change is pretty clear that um, the world's warmed by about one degree since pre-industrial times. It's warming by 0.03 degrees every year. And we've got pretty robust data from 30,000 weather stations showing this warming pattern over the last 40, 50 years. And it's most likely linked to um, rising atmospheric levels of CO2 and other greenhouse gases like methane and, uh, and, and noxes. And so we've got to get the world's energy system to net zero. And the evil, you mentioned an evil, if there is an evil, I think it's the like wanton destruction of our planet um, going unchecked and the continued you know, emission of unmitigated CO2. Um, I don't think there's anything evil about you know, meeting the energy needs of the world. I don't think there's anything evil about providing people with light or heat or mobility or, you know, I mean, this is the week, the rec- this week we're recording this is, you know, record low temperatures in parts of the United States. I don't think it's evil to provide people with heat for their homes. Right. Um, and so I, I, I think what would be really helpful would be to detach this discussion from a kind of demonization of certain companies that some people might, you know, have ideological problems with, with a kind of like gulf of humanity, which is let's avoid wrecking the planet and let's try and get the CO2 emissions in the world to zero. It might be that the lowest cost way to do that involves restoring nature and pulling a lot of CO2 out of the atmosphere to buy a budget for people to continue using, you know, conventional energy sources in a responsible and efficient way. And, and that's that's my model and how, you know, we can take a planet that's soon going to be 10 billion people and, and provide, um, you know, life-changing modern energy to, you know, um, people who, who are going to want it. So what I like here is, uh, and I told you when we started recording, my my gripes with the whole climate, if it was global warming, became climate change, became climate crisis. The politicization, the politicization of this is such that it turns off a lot of people. And, it, and then it becomes a political thing like, well, you're conservative, so that means you don't believe in. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's I don't believe in the politicization of it. And a lot of people are that way. They've been it's been forced down their throats. Your thing is, well, so- Damien, I've got to tell you, I'm worse than a conservative. I'm an economist uh-huh. and I don't have ideologies. Right. Um, if a flying spaghetti monster was the lowest cost way to get the world to net zero, then I would want to use flying spaghetti monsters to get the world to net zero. Whatever the numbers say, whatever data says, mm-hmm. um, that's what ends up being you know, favored in my kind of economic roadmap towards net zero. Now, you and I both know, because I am not an economist, but I am an agricultural economist per my training. And I can tell you that what the problem with economics is, uh, economics is a, uh, is, is, is a supply and demand, is a, is a real world, is about human decision making. And politics sometimes seeks to uh, subvert that or change that, you know, minimum wage laws or uh, shall we say uh, rent ceilings obviously are all really counter to what, agric- to what economics would tell you. But frankly, so are some of the things that we deal with in agriculture, you know, subsidies. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm I'm not that kind of um, economist. I mean, the type of economist that I am is is somebody saying, okay, so you're telling me that um, you're going to produce green hydrogen from renewable electricity, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to be able to go and fill my car up with green hydrogen. Um, I'm the kind of economist who says, okay, so why is that going to cost what it's going to cost? And, um, you know, I I, I will build very detailed models of um, the cost of these different technologies. uh, and I, you know, I'll give you the punchline. Um, if the average person in America bought all of their energy at fifteen dollars a kilogram green hydrogen, it would absorb one hundred percent of their 
annual income for the average person in America, which to me makes me think green hydrogen at $15 a kilogram is not a particularly viable solution to you know, get yeah. people other than the very, very, very wealthy towards um, you know, de- decarbonization. Yeah. So I, I like the fact that we bring the economics to it. You thought we were disagreeing, but we're not. So we're, we're in, in agreement on that, that the economics thing sometimes goes against the actual politics thing, because the economics say this and the politicians know that they have their agenda to push or they want to appeal to a certain cause group that is their base support, whatever. So about what you're saying here is that you look at the the saying, all right, we want to get rid of the carbon. You said you called it decarbonizing the earth. And you said that there's a certain amount of tons of carbon that are out there. And the, the most effective way to do it is just through land use and land practices, because all these other things uh, are, are politically pushed uh, agendas. And you say the reality is you still want those poor people in Texas to be out of electricity. Shit, they'd like to have electricity right now themselves. They're out of electricity. You're saying we want you to have electricity, but let's also address the carbon. And the way to do that is through land use, right? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, um, here here are some numbers because as as we've just covered, that's the best currency in which to deal in this debate. Um, The average acre of land, um, can absorb about five tons of CO2 per acre per year um, through, uh, th- through, through planting new forests, seeding new forests as those, those forests grow. Um, you can probably get up to eight to nine tons of CO2 per acre per year by um, you know, cho- choosing the tree type. There are some slow growing trees like oak. There are some faster growing trees um, like, like poplar. There are some claims of a miracle tree um, that could grow, you know, in the tens of tons of CO2 per acre per year. Um, there's also crops which absorb carbon at a rate of 20 to 30 tons of CO2 per acre per year. The challenge there is that it's not woody biomass. So if you just kind of left it, it would decompose very quickly and that CO2 would go back into the atmosphere. But there are models, you know, of this stuff where you could grow fast growing crops and bury it in the ground and you actually take out eight times more CO2 by burying your corn crop than turning it into ethanol um, or, or similar for you know, sugar cane in, in Brazil. Um, you could bury that biomass and take the CO2 out of circulation that way. And the numbers are kind of fascinating because um, with a $35 per ton CO2 price, that means a corn farmer in the Midwest make more money farming carbon than farming corn. Um, but as you say, these are currently... Um, early stage ideas, the entire kind of nature-based carbon credit market is about 100 million tons a year. Um, you will have seen in the news recently, uh, Shell announced um, plans to be doing 120 million tons of nature-based carbon offsets by 2030. So that is one company coming forwards and saying, you know, single-handedly, they're going to double the size of the nature-based offset market um, to offset. The, and the reason this is happening, and I see this with more and more of my, my clients, is they look at going to run their um, steel plant or their data center powered by green hydrogen or 100% renewables and batteries or you know any of these other fancy technologies that we've done work on. And I say, I can't do that. It's too expensive. It's going to make me uncompetitive. But you know, there's, there's a real desire to restore nature, take CO2 out of the atmosphere, and, and we can do this for somewhere between $3 and $30 per ton. Um, in the best of these projects. I mean, I personally offset my CO2 emissions 10 times over last year, um, cost me an average of $5 a ton. That's even with some conservative accounting. 
And, you know, I, I like thinking about that because, you know, there are all these people who say you should go and buy a ground source heat pump. Yeah. It'll cost you $35,000 and it will take out 4% of your CO2. And I think, why would I spend $35,000 to take out 4% of my CO2 when I could spend $1,000 and take out 1,000% of my you know, annual CO2? And so those numbers are just, you know, completely, as we say in England, chalk and cheese. Um, you know, and, and, and I think that's why the interest is growing in this area. I, I love it. And, I, and my head's spinning. I got a page of notes already. But before I ask you my next question, Rob, I want to remind our listeners that this episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by Harvest Profit. My buddy, uh, my buddy up there, uh, Nick Horb, he started this company because he looked around and said, agricultural enterprises don't have a software solution that actually understands their business. And, and, and so that's what he created. And he's got customers now in 26 states and like four Canadian provinces. Canada, you need to step it up a little bit, all right? But anyway, you can check out Harvest Profit by going to harvestprofit.com and you can use their software free as a trial for 14 days. And I really recommend you check it out because Nick's a good dude and he set up a company that will help you. So harvestprofit.com. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to interrupt you there. And the reason I'm going to interrupt you is because this actually becomes really, really important in our decarbonization models. Um, so uh, we're going to continue the, 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 the thread there. I mean, one of the biggest pushbacks I often get on the, the work we do is, is, is there enough land for this reforestation? Um, that, that you talk about. And um, so our, our model, I think there's 3 billion acres that can be reforested globally. Um, but, you know, the, the biggest competing land use um, is, is agriculture. And um, there's about 2 billion acres of, um, uh, sorry, 2 billion hectares of, of degraded lands, degraded agricultural lands that could be kind of fit for reforestation. But then you also get into this fascinating debate about, you know, if, if we need to free up land for reforestation, what are the ways to do that in the agricultural sector? And, you know, th th we've looked at all sorts of companies in this space from seed companies that make the seeds more efficient by about 1% every year through to exactly like you were just talking about, you know, digital solutions that can enhance um, land productivity by, you know, somewhere between seven and 15% on the studies that I've looked at. And, you know, if, if you think about um, the billion or so acres of, you know, farmland in the United States, and you think about um, freeing up 7% of that, then that's a lot of reforestation potential. And so weirdly, I talk to a lot of investors and they think the only way to invest in energy transition is we've got to buy stocks in solar energy, wind energy, electric vehicles. And I, I, you know, I always think one of the interesting kind of non-obvious opportunities is ag tech, because the more land you can free up, um, the more reforestation can, can be done. So, um, Yes. I, I think that fascinating space. So you and I uh, certainly in agreement. By the way, you used the word a hectare. And for those that are listening to this driving, uh, you know, down the road and they're ag people are like, damn it. I, I, I hear that term when we talk about international stuff, but I'm an acres guy. And hectare is a 2.2, two and a quarter. That's right. 2.2. Yeah. 2.2. So 2.2 acres equals a hectare. So what you're saying is something that I actually have been telling my ag clients for about a year or so, that we're going to see marginal land, meaning marginal farmland, the stuff that's hilly, curvy, highly erodible, requires a tremendous amount of irrigation, just isn't that productive for whatever problems, is going to revert because the reality is our good farmland 
can produce more per acre each year. And it has since, you know, the beginning of agriculture, we've gotten better with technology to do that. So Rob, you and I are certainly in agreement that those marginal acres will revert. And so you've got something in Western Kansas that only gets eight inches of rain. Why are they pumping out the Agalala aquifer to put water on those acres to grow corn that we really don't necessarily need because we can grow that corn in Illinois where the you know deep, uh, deep prairie soils and the moisture works. So some of these places become reverted. Now, some of them will be forest, but also some of them uh, might be prairie grasses. Uh, you know, your, your chart here talks about carbon sequestration by crop, everything from poplar trees to oak trees. Then you also talk about bamboo and elephant grass. Um, the, the, reverse, the reversion to nature. The thing is, if I own those acres and I'm making money off of me uh, farming it, and now you're talking about reverting, why would I be economically incentivized to do that? Is that where carbon comes in? This is where because right, 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 you know, right now, if I if I have some crappy ground, but I can make a little bit of money farming it, and then the USDA gives me a little subsidy, and there's some other things that go along with this. I get some crop insurance, so even if it fails because of a bad year, my crop insurance is half paid for by the government. I'm not being mean; I'm being straight here. At least from an economic standpoint, since you're an economics guy, I'm going to keep farming that crappy ground, even though it might not be needed and it would be better off to go into carbon. Where does the, how, how do I get incentive? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the challenge is that the, the ground that is crappy for farming tends to be crappy for carbon sequestration as well, unfortunately, maybe, maybe less so, but um, you know, I've certainly seen studies on the survival rate of newly planted trees and the very dry to the very rocky to the very hilly, um, you know, you tend to get planted survival rates in the fifties and sixties percent. And um, you know the best the best land you should be getting survival rates in the 90s percent. And, and when, when I talk about those percentages, I mean the you know, percentage of newly planted um, saplings that survive um, over three years. And you know by that point, we've pretty much got a viable tree, and we're going to be growing and taking that carbon up. So I think um, a realignment of policy um, and subsidies could could really help. Um, I think one of one of the biggest you know question marks is should it, people talk about putting carbon prices on industry in the United States. They start saying, you know, if you have a, um, a petrochemical facility or a steel facility or a factory, we're going to come and um, we're going to you know, charge you uh, $50 a ton for every ton of carbon you put into the atmosphere. Um, and, you know, I, I understand that that's a very good way to incentivize efficiency gains and heat recapture and digitization across these industries. And I'm, I'm very in favor of this, but um, it shouldn't be all take. There should be some give. And if, if, you, if you have a technology that can come and can grow 50 tons of, uh, you can, can grow a ton of carbon on your land, you should also be able to get that $50. If, if a ton of carbon is worth $50, um, then you should, you know, it should be a, a fully transparent thing. And um, the atmosphere doesn't care where the CO2 comes from. The atmosphere doesn't know whether you know, a ton of carbon has come from a factory's flu stack or has come from re failing to reforest you know, an acre of land. Mm -hmm. um, it's fungible. And, and so if you, know, if you believe the climate science and you want to incentivize a lot of decarbonization, um, really an economy-wide carbon tax where farmers could benefit you know, would be a, a, a really, really smart way of um, addressing that. Um, what I think is really strange, I'm just going to make one more point, is there are policymakers out there who will take particular 
technologies and say, I love this technology. I'm going to put in place, and you know, this exists right now, um, a $300 per ton credit for carbon, uh, carbon sequestration via this technology. We really want this technology to work. So let's give $300 a ton to these guys because they can take these tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. Why are we willing to give these guys $300 a ton, but we're not willing to give a farmer $300 a ton to grow carbon and take it out of the atmosphere that way? You know, like I said, the atmosphere doesn't care. And surely a fair policy seeks to make, you know, a level, level playing field where everybody can benefit. Okay. So when you talk about, since obviously uh, we got ag people here and they're saying, all right, great. I'd love to make money on this. First off, what do I need to do? What's required of me? Uh, I know we talk about different farming practices, et cetera. And then you've pointed out that um, the difference amounts of, if, if we say, all right, a ton of carbon, as you said, is worth X. Now, right now, nobody's paying us for that. At least no farmers, hardly any ag people are getting that. I'm going to do this and I'm going to yank out that carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's good for everybody. Okay. How do I, so there's going to be different from geography. Somebody in Texas is going to be doing a different crop. They're growing cotton. Whereas somebody up in Illinois is corn, whatever. Tell me what you envision happening um, at the ag level to get paid. What are they doing? What do they need to do? Plant trees. That's one thing, but what about the actual cropping system that they use? to grow our food. Well, that's, that's where agricultural productivity is important because you need to free up the land to, um, to grow the forest and that's going to take it out of production for food crops. Okay, so, so you, um, think, you think that the main thing for an actual produ producer to get paid is, is removal of some of the land and reforestation. What about actual cropping systems? Because we still well, I think that's harder, right? And the reason it's harder is because, um, I mean, you, you know the, you know the old cobra trap, right? Um, I think that, I mean it, it may be an apocryphal story. Um, the story is that you know at, at time the times when um, the British controlled India, they would pay people to come and bring in cobras because it's a dangerous snake, and you pay people to um, you know round up the cobras, and um, then you can clean up the streets and make it safe for everybody. And you found that instead of, you know, the number of um, cobras in the population going down, it skyrocketed because people started breeding cobras in order to, you know, go and hand in the cobra and collect the reward. And I think a lot of people feel, feel that way about, um, you know, if, if we have an industry that's there and it exists anyway, um, and, and suddenly you start incentivizing, um, carbon prices for, for crops, you have to really know that it's incremental and it's not going to be gamed, you know, in order to, um, to make that um, policy fair and sensible. So I think the way I've seen it done for the, um, the crop industry is through soil carbon. So this, this is this area where, you know, and, and these, these numbers are fascinating. Um, you can argue that something like 120 billion tons of, of carbon um, which is you know, something like 25% uh, of all the carbon released by mankind um, has actually come from soil degradation rather than from the combustion of fossil fuels. In fact, the crossover point where fossil fuel carbon you know, it surpassed soil carbon emissions um, was somewhere in the 1960s, so not that long ago. And um, you know, this is this, this um, 
history where every year you come and you you um, plow up the soil and it releases the carbon in the soil back to the surface so that it can decompose and go back into the atmosphere and how you know through mechanized agriculture we've gone from four percent carbon in our soils to one to two percent and you know you, you all know enormous amounts about this topic but this growing uh uh, practice of conservation agriculture that involves uh, a mixture of, you know, no-till farming and involves a mix of um, cover cropping, involves a mix of crop rotations. There are studies um, that show that, you know, over a period of 30, 40 years, you can get that soil carbon back to this miraculous seven or eight percent. And the numbers are really variable. I think the the, the academic literature is quite um, is quite uh, contrastive here. But the numbers range between one ton and five tons of carbon uptake per year just in the soils. And if you can lock that in the soils. And so um, that would be the area where for the kind of crop production industry, there's a real opportunity to farm carbon that, that we've written about. And again, um, about $35 per ton carbon price, um, you know, conservation agriculture could, could allow a farmer to make more money farming the carbon than farming the, the crops. Yeah. So, um, okay. And I want to give a couple of those numbers because I love your, your numbers just to make sure that we're not overwhelming our listener. Um, the agriculture, as you pointed out, when we till and I'm, I'm a conservation guy, so I'm way with you. I think I said in my book, by the way, dear listener, if you haven't drink in food fear, I point out that we are going to look back at all of the tillage that we have done and the way that now we look back at using leeches for medical care. Uh, <laughs> we're, going look, we're going to look back and say, why the hell were we out there beating up our tillage destroys soil structure, tillage creates erosion, tillage creates compaction, and tillage, as you point out now, is also guilty of uh, carbon release. So we're going to do less tillage, and we should. By doing less tillage, then we are sequestering more carbon. We can get compensated for that. But you talked about putting more carbon into there. You know, we've historically been 4%, and now because of practices and various other things, we're at 1%. What's the maximum we can get to in the soil percentage of carbon? Well, I, I, I've seen numbers definitively showing um, 8% over 40-year studies. Um, I think it's out of the University of Ohio that those those studies have been done. Um, you probably know guys like Ratan Lal and um, you know the, the work being done there. Um, but I, I think um, I think you know nobody really knows is the answer is how yeah. much carbon you can lock in there because soil just keeps accumulating. So we can put more in there, and we do it through not tilling. We do it through establishing deep amounts of roots. Uh, and, and we can still do this within our cropping system. But as you said, the main thing is just getting out of the tillage. The crops are, we still got to have the crops because we have to eat. So we've, we've got to do harvest. We can't, as you said, you could do a thing where you just uh, grow corn and then never harvest it and never turn it into ethanol. And that's a net positive for carbon sequestration. But then we don't have the corn and we don't have the ethanol. We don't have the food. We don't have the gas. Yeah. Are you, are you familiar with um, TRLs? Is this something that ever comes up on your 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 list. I know a lot of people hate acronyms, but um, a TRL is a technology readiness level. It's it's like a nine nine point scale. Zero is a glimmer in the eye of a scientist, something that doesn't exist yet. Nine is um, you know something fully technically ready, ready to go. And generally, you know, when I talk to people, we we only talk about stuff that's at TRL six or seven or above. So it means we've got a demonstration plant. The technology definitively works. Somebody's actually done it in the field. Um, so, you know, we, we've talked a bit about that. For, um, and, uh, you know, you, you would put, um, you would put no-till agriculture 
you know, towards the, the top of that list. I mean, it's, it's ready. It's, there's nothing stopping people from going out and doing this right now. If you go a little bit earlier into the kind of technology readiness um, rankings, um, I mean, you get some weird and wonderful stuff in here. I mean, there, there are groups of teams like at the Salk Institute who are trying to breed crops that would, um, would be, be genetically programmed to secrete um, lots of carbon into the soil. Like what one example is, is crops that would secrete suberin through their roots. That's the material used in cork um, or, or that's in avocado peels. And, you know, you could in principle have crops that just pull the CO2 out of the air, funnel it to their roots and just decide, you know, boom, I'm going to put a lot of carbon into the soil in a, in a really stable way. And so, you know, your answer of what's the limit, it could actually be, you know, very, very high. Well, what you've also just pointed out, though, is that this is really remarkable because now, again, what can the what can we do with the ag sector? Well, the reality is, we maybe this this crop, which might be genetically engineered, which will cause another whole uh, bunch of people to lose their their minds, uh, where we can plant a certain type of seed seed that is more about grab it, it's a, it grabs more carb, atmospheric carbon and puts it in the soil. So that's one really important thing. Back to the other part of this about being incentivized. Who incentivize? I mean, in the ideal world, we know there's a, again, I, I think the gripe is always in the politicization. Do the companies voluntary or does it become a government mandated exchange? So then Damien Mason's acres in Indiana say we are yanking this much atmospheric carbon out through our practices and there's maybe an audit or some sort of verification and then I get paid. How do you envision it, Rob? How do you envision it working? Well, I think it's going to end up being um, a voluntary market. And I think because it's a voluntary market, monitoring and compliance are going to end up being you know, the, the real challenge. Let, let me tell you what I mean by that. And then I'll tell you why I think that. Um, the you know, the, the issue we, we have right now is I think there's a, a disconnect in policy where um, policymakers seem to want to give really high subsidies to incentivize these technologies over here and basically not enough attention to low-cost solutions like these agricultural solutions that could do a lot of decarbonization over here. Um, and I, I, I guess i got to be a realist. Um as much as I'd love to see that change for the good of um, decarbonizing the world, um, I'm not sure it is going to change. And um, some of the indicates that the incoming administration seems to be more on the side of preferring very direct subsidies for friend technologies over here rather than a kind of level playing field. Do, do um, what you just mean? The, the, because this is we are going to be here for the next four years at least. And my people want to know, you just said the current administration like prefers friend technologies. You're, you're talking about like throw money at Solar, wind, solar, hydrogen, batteries. Right. I mean, there are some things that are just really in vogue, really in favor. And yeah, uh, there's this kind of perception we've got to take these techn- and we've got to make them work at whatever cost. And I, I guess as there opposed, are people- as opposed to you think a more pragmatic approach is rather than throwing gazillions of dollars at a bunch of crap that may or may not work. What if we just let fossil fuels still exist, but then make it so that we change some farming practices? Well, and- look, here's, here's the way I think about it is. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to an ethane cracker or been to an oil refinery, but you go to these things and they are complicated beasts. Yeah. And I, I think if, if you have an economy-wide CO2 price and everybody who emits carbon pays that economy-wide CO2 price, um, then as the policymaker, I don't have to understand 
how the heat tubes work in the ethane cracker. Okay, because there's now an incentive for whoever runs that ethane cracker to make those heat tubes more efficient and take out that carbon to the extent that they can. And so you could do a lot of decarbonization at a very, very granular um, industrial level with that CO2 price that you could really never figure out and do um, with policy because it's just it's just too granular. Um, and, and I think that that's what, you know, what, what, where I'm coming from with, with this view. And if you have that level playing field and you were to include um, agricultural solutions that sequester carbon you know, as part of that level, level playing field, um, then you would need to have a government program of how you certify that carbon is real. Um, I've been through some of these carbon certification processes and they're kind of clunky and kind of um, bureaucratic. Um, I, I don't know if many of your listeners are, you know, familiar with, um, with you know, getting certified for, for things through um, th- th- and, and the way that affects you. But um, you know, I've been through some of the standards on this, and let me put the numbers in perspective for you. I think if I had about um, about fifty acres that I tried to reforest, um, I think I could reforest that for about five dollars a ton. Um, I then think to get certified. That my forest is real and has, you know, has satisfied the regulators on carbon sequestration would cost me another five dollars a ton. So I have I have a choice. I could either take out two times as much carbon at five dollars a ton, or one times as much carbon at certified carbon, you know, at, at ten dollars a ton. And mm-hmm. um, so the question is, if certification is that expensive relative to the cost of um, the carbon sequestration, you know, wouldn't it be more logical to just do a lot more carbon sequestration and then have the buyer just verify it um, within a streamlined process that is going to bypass this very clunky certification that exists today. Um, so how could you do that? Well, um, when it comes to soil carbon, there are you know, fascinating things being patented, being commercialized, like coulters that you trail through the soil, and they take a, a reading based on, say, moisture content or other very rapidly detectable variables to estimate soil carbon um, in a very good, reliable way. Um, where instead of it costing you five dollars a ton to certify the carbon in your soil, you know it would cost you half a dollar a ton. Uh, likewise, if, if I'm planting trees, instead of having somebody come round with a tape measure and literally hug every tree and measure its circumference and sort of draw a picture and try and estimate, you know, what if you had a, a, a series of drone and satellite technologies where again you could, you know, you wouldn't get the answer to ninety nine point nine percent certainty. Mm-hmm. But it's nature. You don't need it to 99.9% certainty. That's a false level of certainty. Right. I want to know when I'm buying these credits for myself in a voluntary market, are they real? Is somebody doing a fraud? Is somebody claiming they've you know, reforested an area that's a car park? And you know, I, I feel like a well-designed carbon market that has a, a minimum um, imagery verified to come from the place that it comes from, drone footage, um, good algorithms to estimate the biomass in the trees. You could get 90% of the way there for you know less than a dollar a ton of verification cost. And that would create this kind of virtual marketplace where people could go and they could say, look, 
I run a company. I want to make my company carbon neutral. I want to make sure that my carbon is written off against the carbon grown by you know Damien Mason at this plot, at this specific acre, Illinois, right here. I can put a picture of it on my wall in my business and tell all my customers. And that is going to be a hundred times cheaper than converting my shop to you know burn hydrogen in its boiler or what, you know, whatever it is. So that, so that's kind of what's happening right now, you know, based on the guy that I had on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, it's uh, Rob is that um, a, a private company said, I want to be able to tell my customers that we are offsetting our carbon. So here's some money to this guy. And it went through an auditing process and was verified and they're putting 1.15 tons of carbon in per, you know, per, per uh, acre. Uh, so here's some money. And it didn't seem like it was nearly what you're talking about. I think it was $15 a ton, but the marketplace is still not, there's not a real market. It's not like if I want to sell a bushel of corn, I know exactly what I can get for it today at delivery. Whereas this is kind of still out there. Is it going to develop? Well, this is, you've hit it on exactly the right point, which is one, the regulation is too clunky. And so people are going, bypassing that regulation and going on to a voluntary market. And then the voluntary market has to reassure its buyers that the credits are real. And, you know, we've talked about the ways they're doing that. There is no price yet. I mean, I've, I've got a data file, you know, um, of 30 companies I looked at that offer carbon offsets. You can go and you can buy them today. And the prices range from $3 a ton to $30 a ton. Um, because people are just selling, it's a voluntary market. They're selling whatever they want, whatever they can. Um, I think, um, as we've also touched upon, there could be a much higher price if you know an economy-wide CO2 price came into force at $50 a ton and farmers could sell their credits against that. So there, there really is no indication of what the price is going to be. But let, let me put it in perspective that you know, I hope is interesting and helpful. If you have a $10 per ton CO2 price, and you wanted to you know, take a gallon of gasoline that you buy and you wanted to offset it at that $10 per ton CO2 price, that would be like 10 cents a gallon. You know, in other words, with the you know, price fluctuation we've seen over the past few years, yeah. if you could offset that carbon at $10 a ton, it would be a rounding error. You, you wouldn't even notice the difference you know, c- compared to the sort of movements we've had in fuel prices recently. Um, if I was going to do it at $50 a ton, it would be like 50 cents a gallon. And again, you know, I mean, I, I'm from I'm from Europe. You know what we pay per gallon in Europe is like seven dollars a gallon mm-hmm. because we put all these big taxes in there. And I think as a human being, it's somewhat disappointing to me that you know when I pay four dollars a gallon in taxes, nowhere has the government been able to say, you know, we could take ten to fifty cents of that and give it to somebody to like grow some forest to offset that CO2. Really, we have the tax in there already to you know do a lot of that work. It just nobody's done it yet. And so this market is growing at 30% per year in, in the voluntary market. And, um, you know, if people really are serious about decarbonization, as I think they are, things are going to keep growing at that rate. So a couple, yeah, I, I agree. And there's obviously the, the, the political part of it is actually different than the marketplace part of it. One's trying to play the other to see where things are going, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a little overwhelming right now, but it's certainly hot. The other way to do it, the other way to do it is, is with the wood. I mean, if, if you take acreage out of production and um, you, know, you, you use it to grow a forest, eventually you're going to get to harvest that wood. And um, you know, this is a, an enormous opportunity. If you think iron and steel are 10% of the world's CO2 emissions, um, and there are you know, mass timber products, wood products that can displace iron and steel um, in, in construction, you actually get a double benefit. Um, the first benefit is you, you don't use you know, 
steel um, or cement, um, one to two tons of CO2 per ton of product. You use a you know, carbon neutral product that comes from wood. Um, and, and two, um, you can then re replant that acreage after you've harvested it and grow even more wood and take even more CO2 out of the atmosphere. But commercially, and you know, where it's interesting is you might not get paid for the carbon, but you know, the wood is basically made of carbon. And so if you're selling the wood, you know, $25 a ton to $75 a ton stumpage, you can get paid for the carbon right there. Um, and, and, and even more if there was a CO2 price as well. Yeah. So, uh, and we've been on here a while. And just in case you forgot, dear listener and viewer, this is Rob West. He's the founder uh, of an analyst company uh, called Thundersed Energy. And he's been very gracious and he's probably overwhelmed you with uh, some of these numbers, but he's got a lot to say. And you can actually go to thundersedenergy.com, right? And if they want to see some of the stuff you're working on. That's right. Yeah. We have a free distribution list, um, you know, really just to help educate people, give them interesting ideas around, um, what, what are the economically rational ways for the world to get to net zero? I like to um, be rational and I want to hear this. Okay. So what do my people out here working in the business of agriculture, mostly North America is where my listenership and viewership come from. What do they need to know? Um, you know they, they see a lot of stuff, man, the farm, the farm trade papers and everybody's talking about this. What do we need to know, Rob? What, what, when's it coming and how, what should, should we just, should I just say, hey, I got a bunch of acres. I'm doing conservation tillage. I'm doing no-till. I'm doing this. I'm going to take this chunk of ground over here and put it in trees. I just need to go and call up uh, some company and say, will you give me money for that? Because that's kind of not happening right now. What do I need to know? What's, what do these people need to know? This market's in its infancy. If the world is serious about getting to net zero, um, this is going to be the single biggest opportunity in the entire energy transition. Um, you know, I'll just give you the numbers. We've got we've got 50 billion tons of CO2 per year right now in the world. 50 billion tons of CO2 is what we're producing in the world. Every year, every year. If we do nothing, by 2050, we're going to be 80 billion tons of CO2 per year. Um, and if we're going to take out those 80 billion tons of CO2 per year, well, there's actually um, enough opportunities, there's enough technologies to take out that 80 billion tons twice over. So, you know, my, my economically rational roadmap picks the lowest cost opportunities out of 100 different opportunities we've looked at. The single biggest one is, is restoring nature, um, soil carbon, um, reforestation. And I think that's going to do over a quarter of all of the decarbonization in the world. That's about 35% more than all of renewables, by the way, to put, to put the number in perspective. Jesus. And so this is... Doing it huge, through, but it's doing it through ag, we can get rid of, of the 50 billion tons that are going right now. How many can we get through? How many of can we then yank out of the atmosphere through ag done right? I have 20 billion tons per year in my numbers. Okay. Um, the reforestation number is pretty certain. Um, I've got it at 15 billion tons a year. The soil carbon bit is less certain, and that could be anywhere between one and 15 billion tons a year, depending because the, those studies are. That's an earlier technology readiness. That, that that's less reliability in the data to go on. Last question, and it's a little off the reservation, but not really. Uh, the, <laughs> the lashing out against meat. I like meat. Uh, I like dairy. I like cheese. I like ice cream. I like pork chops. Am I still going to be allowed to eat meat? Because that gets blamed for environmental degradation, but it's really not even CO two stuff. So, what's the deal on meat? Are we gonna are we gonna have a regulations on meat, or can we just be fine as long as we harness the 
carbon dioxide and keep doing what we can do on our best land and then take marginal land out, do all that stuff? What's the outlook for meat? Well, you know, I think um, it's a real shame policy-wise when the policy comes down to let's take this thing that somebody enjoys and ban it. Um, (laughs) But it's a challenge. Um, Meat is probably how you measure it. Um, eight to fifteen percent of the world's CO two. Um, it's eighty percent of the world's agricultural land to produce twenty percent of the calories. Um, it's a it's a really challenging question. Um, I think at the margin, more people are going to choose plant based diets where they really care about sustainability. Um, but I think it links back to a very broad view about. Um, energy and energy transition, which is, you know, remember that the goal here is not to get the world to net zero um, at the expense of all the people living in the world. Right. The goal is to meet the demands of the world to allow people to have, you know, enjoyable, fulfilling lives and take out all the CO2 in the process. Mm-hmm. And, and this is why, um, you know, you make the really good point that um, we probably want a decarbonization solution that allows people to continue enjoying things that, you know, within reason, make them happy and offset those, you know, environmental consequences rather than a, you know, set of blanket bans that, you know, actually end up with everybody being unhappier. Yeah. Right. So that yeah. I mean, it might be a nice place to, to, yeah, to leave it. Let, let's see O2 with a bunch of pissed off people. Isn't good for anybody either. All right. Well, I can tell you what, I've enjoyed this a lot. Uh, he threw a lot of, he threw a lot of information out there, but I, I gotta tell you, I've, I've enjoyed it. And I think I agree that, that agriculture is a big part of the solution. And when you get past the screwball politics of it, we know that the reality is every day, the plants and the, and the stuff that we, and we take care of the earth, we grab stuff out of the atmosphere known as atmospheric carbon and we, uh, we utilize it to, for plant growth. So um, I appreciate being on what else to, what else you got your last, your last uh, thing you want to tell anybody, Rob West, Thunderstead energy closing, uh, closing statement. No, that's great. Um, I, I think we covered it. All right. So anyway, check him out. Thundersetenergy.com. Uh, I really appreciate you being here until next time. Reminder that this business and agriculture podcast is brought to you by Harvest Profit. Harvestprofit.com is where you'll find a software solution to help your agricultural enterprise be more profitable. Check it out. Okay. Thanks a lot, Rob West. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Damien. Thank until you. next time, it's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.